Well, um, I think this is one of those great songs. I love that smooth feel. I used to be a drummer in years gone by and had long hair back then, which is now gone. Uh, but I just love those guys who could get into the groove. Um, you got the pyrotechnics and whatever, but people like Fleetwood Mac, you know, that guy just lays it down beautifully. Oh, anyhow, enough of that. Um, <laughs> we're dealing with Romans. Uh, of course, the point that's being made in all of this is we love our freedom, but the fact is, in the end, uh, none of this is about our autonomy. None of us can exist on our own. So this Western pursuit of uh, independent freedom, I think, is just the path to death. Um, the path to self-discovery is the path to nowhere because our existence is scripted in the grammar of our relationships. Uh, that's what it means to be human. So any kind of freedom that doesn't buy into that is in serious trouble. And if you were here last week, Alison actually did a version of this song. It was called, You Gotta Marry Somebody. Right? <laughs> There's somewhere you've got to be attached to. Uh, and that image may not suit some of us because you might think marriage kind of has a little bit to do with being subservient or something and being dependent. Well, we'll come back to that, but actually we are creatures and yes, we are dependent. So suck it up, as they say. Well, I think last week Alison did a great job at the beginning of chapter 7, which is where we are, talking about Paul's marriage analogy. And I don't know if you recall, but it's a little bit macabre, isn't it? No? Your husband's death is what sets you free. And I'm thinking, it's an Agatha Christie moment. Where's Valanda when you need him? Anyone watch Valanda? Do you have any Scandinavian? No? You know Valanda? Okay. What do you, what do you, oh yeah. Yeah, the, the Swedish one. <laughs> yeah, not, not the English version, but the, the Swedish one. Okay. Well, so you got him in the Bible there, right? So your husband has to die so you can be free. Just don't help him along the way, right? Uh, the good news is that it was all part of God's rebuilding project for the whole world, okay? Now, uh, she also mentioned that we'd looked at Romans last year. I don't know if uh, you could remember that, but I'm a bear of pretty small brain and I forget these things. Uh, so what I want to do is spend some significant time on context. Uh, don't think I'm a theologian. I like to think of myself more as an historian. And in history, everything's about context. You can't just talk about a text with putting it in its original setting. So I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on that and then we'll come to our short passage at the end and just unpack that in that larger context. Well, depending on your Christian heritage, what part of the Christian tradition you come from, Romans is often considered the ultimate and most influential of Paul's letters, right? You, you think the New Testament, and some people think immediately Romans. Right? Now, that's particularly so in the Western church. It's not really part of the Greek tradition. And probably, most of all, in the Reformed tradition, right? because of Augustine and then Calvin and Luther and off you go. So for many people in that tradition, Romans was long regarded as the companion of all things Pauline. Well, nice try, but no cigar, actually. There's nothing in Romans on the church as the body of Christ. In fact, there's nothing about Christ's return. There's nothing about our resurrection, which is what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. There's nothing about in-between times, seeing the cross as God's wisdom. You won't find that in Romans. Nothing about our common meal together, nothing about, nothing about suffering with Christ, nothing about the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or what we do with our bodies. And you go on and on and on, right? There's a ton of stuff that's missing for Romans. So whatever you do, don't see Romans as the Paul. It's really important? Absolutely. Does it cover everything? Not at all. That would be a serious mistake. 
It's much more like Galatians. It's got a particular focus that it's running with. Now, I've mentioned Paul, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, and another important bit of context, let's be frank, some of us are not really sure what we think about Paul, right? He's got a bit of a reputation, and what's the big one? He doesn't like women. Have you heard that? And I just want to say, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. If you know the ancient world, no one, and I mean no one in the ancient world, is more supportive of women than Paul. He affirms their dignity, their value, right? And this is in the Roman world where women are meant to keep quiet. What does Paul do? He gives them freedom to speak on behalf of the church in prayer. Stunning. And even more amazing, on God's behalf to the church, whether through prophecy and I would even say preaching and teaching. I think in, uh, Paul has just been horribly misunderstood in a number of passages. I think it's more about imposing later third century Hellenistic conservatism on a gospel that really was very different when it first started. But that's another story. Imagine telling a Greco-Roman male where the world is all about him that his wife is his glory. <laughs> and, you know, there's something important about this, folks. I think really, uh, I mentioned this this morning, if you're looking to hire someone for a ministry position, if it's a guy, make sure he brings his wife along. Ask him the questions, but look in her face for the answers. Because if she's not shining, don't go near him with a barge pole. Right? He's meant to be his glory. Right? He's meant to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's a small ask, isn't it, guys? And furthermore, the same spirit that indwells these men also indwells her. Now, you, I, can, I could go on, but this, this is radical, radical stuff in the first century. And it's just staggering to me that we've somehow lost it. I'm not going to go down that road. That's not our point tonight. But for him, you know, the gifts and graces of the inbreaking new, uh, new creation are gender blind, just like their ethnicity blind, just like their social status blind. And if I'm allowed just a wee moment of naughtiness here, it's eye-wateringly delightful, I think, <laughs> that the first person ever to interpret Romans to a public audience and in Rome of all places was a woman. <laughs> Isn't that gorgeous? Wonderful, this one. Um, it's Phoebe. She's the letter of the house church in the Corinthian port of Tencrae. She's the letter carrier. Now, what do you know about letter carriers? Well, they don't have postal services. People have to take letters. But what the letter carrier's job is, is to explain the letter. That's why there's a lot of stuff in Paul that we don't quite get because we don't have to. The letter carrier is going to take it and kind of unpack that, right? Which means Phoebe had to be there all the way through the writing of the letter. Well, I just love that, I have to say. I know one perverse, sorry. Okay. Uh, ever seen Shakespeare in Love, that climactic scene where Mr. Tilney comes rushing in, right? Stop these things in the name of Queen Elizabeth, da-da-da, right? That woman is a woman, it turns out to be something. Remember that scene? You ever seen Shakespeare in Love, you guys? Come on, hands up, you've seen it. Right, if you guys want to win a gold star with your girlfriend, take this to see Shakespeare in Love. It'll be good for you too, right? It's a wonderful moment. Now, come on, you can grin a little bit, okay? It's okay to be a bit cheeky on a Sunday night. Thank you, good eye. For others, Paul's a bit much of an alpha male. Now, let's be honest, he's got a far too healthy assessment of his own importance. <laughs> Frankly, a bit arrogant and cranky. 
Well, as I used to have to remind some of my nice Canadian friends, Paul was not Canadian. He's a Jew. As one Israeli scholar commented based on his experience in California recently, where in California everyone has a right to their own opinion, he says, yeah, in Jerusalem not so much. You have to earn the right to have an opinion. And that goes for professors as well, actually. So I teach Intro to the New Testament. I love it a lot. And I get students in the class, their first year class, want to write on this and that. and have to say, look, no offense, but actually I'm not really interested in your opinion. You don't know enough to have one yet. <laughs> Which can be a bit bracing in some circumstances. I think it's really important to know, right? Um, you've got to know what you're talking about. And I think Paul does, actually. So he's direct, but I happen to love that. I love going to Israel because you know where you stand. It's an amazing thing. Uh, Having said that, you only have to remember that we're mostly seeing Paul when his tail feathers are up. And he's having to defend his congregations from a motley assortment of imposters and assorted 'er ne'er-do-wells. So he's fighting for the integrity of the gospel. But you know, you don't attract 40 co-workers by being a jerk. That is a technical Greek term. There's something about Paul that's immensely attractive to people. And if you read 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy or Philippians or Philemon, you start to realize what an exceptional human being he was. He weeps, he bleeds, he cares, he has a deep pastoral heart. What I love about him He is profoundly loyal to Jesus for whom he really has lost everything in his world that mattered. That gets some stars from my point of view. He will gladly allow himself to appear weak, foolish and even beneath social contempt as long as it brings the life of the gospel to others. He is transparently sincere. He's a great one but he doesn't mind talking about being depressed almost to the point of thinking he's going to die. I love it about the guy. He bears in his body the wounds of his devotion to Jesus. There's a wonderful story uh, when King Herod is suspected of disloyalty to Caesar. He has to go to Rome to face charges and he stands in front of the emperor and he gives this wonderful declamation in his defense and it is his last act. He rips off his tunic, turns around and shows all the battle scars on his body and says, I bear in my body the marks of my loyalty to Caesar. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's scarred, he's bruised from beatings, floggings, a stoning, several shipwrecks. He's worn thin with constant care and exposure while traveling in all kinds of weathers. He has a history of pouring out his life for others and throwing a prison term or two for good measure. So can I just suggest, try reading Romans with that image in mind. Don't see this as the aloof professor having an abstract abstract discussion over coffee. That's not what's going on. That's not what's happening here. And remember too that he entrusted this letter to a woman to explain this in Rome with all its traditional male patriarchy. Now, I think if you keep that in mind, you read Romans, it's going to sound very different. Okay, So that's just kind of setting some of the scene. I said we spend some time here, we've got a bit more to go. So why Romans? Why do we even have this book in the first place? Drop out of the sky, an angel, a stride, a flaming donut appeared and throughout, you know, is that what happened? No, I don't think so. I think that's a quote, by the way, from John Lennon, if I remember correctly. Not about Romans, but the angel. Uh, <coughs> as best we can tell, Paul dictated Romans while wintering in Corinth. 
Uh, it's obviously too unsafe to travel in the Mediterranean during winter. So it's either 55 to 56 AD or 56 to 57. It's near the end of his third missionary journey. Now, once the weather clears, he's going to take the offering to Jerusalem. He's been working on that for many years. Corinthians, that's always bubbling underneath. It's a chance to show the Jews that Jesus has changed people's hearts and Gentiles are now caring for Jewish people. Wonderful, wonderful moment to demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel. That's underwriting all of that stuff. But once he's done that, the next question is, what is next for him? Now, we know about Paul that he will not work in other people's territory. And since everything from what we now call Turkey, but was then called Asia, through Greece to a place called Illyricum, which is now modern-day Croatia, and even Rome, that's all been covered. He's got his eye on Spain. But to do that, he's going to have to have a base that will support him and he would really like Rome's help. Of course, by this time, Rome is clearly a significant Christian community. Rome is by far the largest city in the empire, about a million people or more. And in the western part, it dwarfs anything else. The east has a lot of large cities, but in the west, it's Rome and all the also lands. It happens to be the seat of the empire, so it's a pretty important place. But he has problems. Ah, yes, Paul has problems. The first one is, he didn't found the church. And we know he does not like people sticking their noses into communities that they did not establish. Read the end of 2 Corinthians. He does not like these people. It's pretty powerful stuff. False apostles, enemies of Christ. So what's he doing writing to a church he didn't found? We've got to be careful about that. And the truth is, we don't actually know who founded Rome. Certainly not Peter. He died there, but he certainly didn't found it. Right? How it began, we're not quite sure. Maybe some of the Romans who were there at Pentecost went up, took the gospel back to Rome and did something, but we just don't know. That's the first thing. He didn't found the church. Second, unsurprisingly, they have heard of him. And who wouldn't have in the church in the first century? And why? Read Acts. Everywhere Paul goes, there's an uproar. How many pastoral committees do you think he'd get by? <laughs> Probably not even get the first interview. Um, and maybe not even a reply letter. Thank you for applying, not or something. And especially in the synagogues, remember those wounds? Most of those come from other Jewish people. And particularly, it's the issue of the Jewish Torah, which is the heart of our text. If you think about it, why would Paul begin with saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ unless some people thought he should be? So there's something about the gospel he's preaching that they say you ought to be ashamed about this. And Romans is going to tell you what some of those things are. And one of them is, Paul, what does what you're preaching say about the Torah? Because if you follow this argument through, there are some serious issues. Now he gets to ask, he repeats this question. So, are you saying the Torah is sin? What in the world could Paul have said that would ever lead someone to ask that question? And we'll unpack some of that. So, if he wants Roman support, he's got some serious explaining to do. And that's partly what we see in Romans. The third thing is he actually knows quite a lot of them. You've read through Romans, you come to chapter 16, it is endless with all these greetings. You're thinking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, five-year-old kids in the car, are we there yet? Just, right? There's nothing like it in the rest of the New Testament. Right? And because of this, he knows their issues. There are lots of Jews in Rome. You heard of a guy called Pompey? Or Pompey, right? And actually, Pompey is the right pronunciation. He uh, captured 
Jerusalem about 100 years earlier and took thousands of Jewish slaves back to Rome. And many of those slaves end up becoming manumitted, so they're their freed men, which can be a good or a bad thing, mostly a bad thing because you're too poor. And some of those folks end up becoming Christians. So there are Jewish Christians in Rome. And Paul knows, I think, on the basis of his friendships, that there are serious tensions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile ones. And the most obvious flashpoint is food. Now, it might be surprising to us that in the ancient world you couldn't worship without food. So we're all waiting for the meal out the back. This idea of sitting in pews is utterly foreign. Now, you meant to sit around tables and feed and eat and I'd much deal. I'm thinking of writing a new movie in which I'll star. It's called Restaurants of Fire. When I eat, I feel God's pleasure. That'll be the punchline, right? <laughs> so they're eating together. That's why food really matters. Okay? Um, and you see, that's going to be the obvious flashpoint. No one is peeking under togas to see if you've been snipped. Right? That's not going to happen. But food is the one that everyone's going to bump up against. And that's why there's a whole chapter on that. Now, I think we can see some indications of how he knows what's going on when he has these engagements with his imaginary interlocutor. That's the technical word. Someone might say, what then shall we say? Or our question today, is God's law sin? You see, he knows what's going on, and not just because he knows this community. He's met these questions before. He spent the last few decades preaching this message. And he really is kind of one of the front runners in Israel's history. If he hadn't become a Christian, you'd be reading about him in the Talmud or the Mishnah. He's a really sharp, clever guy. So he's met all of these debates, all of these issues. And so he knows what's going on from his friends and he knows what he has to answer to given his experience. Now, here's the thing. Because this church is not his, he's got to be very careful how he talks to them. If you read Corinthians, it's just full on. Galatians even more so, right? And he's writing the Philippians. These people are troubling you. I wish the knife would slip. (laughs) Sounds very Christian, right? But he can't do that when he's writing to the Romans. So his argument is much more structured. His tone is much more respectful. We might find it pedantic, but in his world, that was the way to honour this congregation and give them the dignity they deserve. All right? You're just trying to hear that tenor of it. He tells him he's wanted to visit many times for their mutual edification. What does that tell us? The church is no recent phenomenon. I've already mentioned perhaps all the way back to Pentecost. And also of some significance that he should want to go there. Well, of course he's going to be a church in Rome. It's the center of the empire. And it's a huge city. Of course, of course, of course, right? Now, since he's going to be asking them for help, he wants to offer them something as well. And he actually can. He truly is an expert on all things Jewish. At the forefront of his generation, he tells us. Trained under the the top guys in Jerusalem, right? So he's the guy with an Oxford, actually a Cambridge PhD. I want to talk about the really important stuff. He's got that, several of them. But he's also got the fact that Jesus called him. Right? So he's got some stuff to bring to the table. So with all of that as background, if you can kind of hold that all in your head, right? What's going on in Romans, I think, is a defense of the gospel that Jesus called him to preach and especially dealing with its very troubling implications. And we're going to come up against one of those in just a few moments. You see, if friendship with God, now you do understand the word righteousness, you've got to be careful how you hear that word. That's a relational term. The best translation, I think, is friendship with God. If you turn that into purely a legal term, you rob it of its real heart. Now, you're all nice people. You've never been to court. I have. 
I once drove an unregistered car. I find myself as a good Christian lad fronting the magistrate, scared spitless or something like that. Right? And, uh, you know, I'm, how do you plead? And I'm kind of quaking in my boots and I plead guilty and he says, okay, well, that'll be $40 or four days. And I didn't have $40. So I thought he meant four days to pay it off. And I said, I'll take the four days. He said, that's in prison. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay it, I'll pay it. Um, and I couldn't wait to get out, there quick, out of there quickly enough, right? But that's not the gospel story. The gospel story is, yep, you're in trouble because you've done some bad stuff. But God's actually impatiently waiting for Jesus to turn up who's a little late, caught in the traffic. Oh, it's okay, I've covered all of that. And God says, great, throws off his wig and his robe, jumps over the, and, and takes you out to the pub for a drink. That's what righteousness means. You got that? It's a profoundly relational term. And can I just say with all the love and tenderness in my heart, if you don't know that, then you don't know Jesus yet. And tonight's a good night, a really good night to get that sorted. Profoundly relational language. So if friendship with God is no longer about doing what Flora says, but instead a spirit-filled life based on trusting Jesus, it's kind of picking up on Alison's thing about the marriage, which is now open to formerly idolatrous Gentiles as Gentiles. Oh my goodness. Hang on a minute. What about this 1,400-year distinction between Jews and Gentiles? What about that, mate? And of course, as you would know, central to all of that is what? Torah. Given to them at Mount Sinai. And you're saying, what? It's central to Israel's unique identity. And, and what? And what does that mean about Israel? What's their status in all of this? And then, so what does that say about God's faithfulness? That's why he says, I'm not ashamed. These are all good reasons why you ought to be. What he's preaching just flies in the face of this long, long narrative. Now, can I just suggest to you then that Romans is not an abstract treatise on how you get saved. Don't do that to it. It's not that. It's a personal letter dealing with some very raw identity issues. The stuff that defined these people for 1,400 years for which many of them have died and suffered ostracism. That's now on the table. And folks, people don't react to that calmly. And I think the reason we sometimes do is because we don't get just how visceral these issues are for these people. But he's writing this with a deep missional and pastoral focus. It's about unity and mission. Right? So, now my last intro comment. Yes, we are going to get to the text. In our world, every culture is to be respected, right? Every culture has its value and to be honoured. We believe that. No judging. So it's going to strike us, I think, as a bit odd, why all this attention on Israel? And frankly, let's be honest about this, who could care less about a long, arcane argument about parse Jewish stuff? Could you actually think of anything more irrelevant? <laughs> it's just mind-numbingly not important. Why are we talking about this? Now, I get that. I do. I think it's one of the reasons why good preachers often start their sermons in everyday lives. It's a way of saying this is relevant. 
And that's a good thing. God does want to speak to us. But I have some caution. I think one of the dangers is that it can make it sound as though it's all about us. And the bad news is, sorry, neither you nor I are the centre of the universe. We're not the centre of this world, nor are we the centre of the God who made it. It doesn't revolve around us. God loves us, yes, as his creatures, not as his equals. Oh, going to have to deal with that one for a bit. I think that's called repentance. On top of that, Israel's God is the only game in town. And if that's true... And yes, everyone is in fact made in God's image so they're equally valuable. If this is true, all cultures are not equal. That's one of the great offences of Christianity. We're claiming there's one story that actually trumps every other and that does not go down well in the postmodern world. And the real reason it doesn't go down well is not because we respect all cultures, is that we don't want our centrality to be taken away from us. That's what's really going on behind a lot of that stuff. And you'll discover that, right? You'll discover that pluralism doesn't include people who question it. You come across that kind of stuff? Okay. Well, that's the first thing, right? Not all cultures are equal. Israel's story is the one that matters. None of the others do, ultimately. And then secondly, Paul's actually seen the resurrected Jesus. It's not a vision. When he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, he groups it with what the 11 saw, just as they saw Jesus physically in the room. That's what Paul says he saw. Now, some years ago, I was listening to the BBC. There's a wonderful series called In Our Time with Melvin Bragg, and they talk about a whole bunch of issues. This day they were talking about Paul, so I'm all ears. They have three professors from the top English universities, uh, or I should say um, the UK universities, And so they begin by talking, oh, tell us about this Damascus Road thing. And so the first guy begins, I can't do the English thing properly. Well, you know, in the 19th century, people thought he had a nervous breakdown, da-da-da-da-da. And then actually, no. The fact of the matter is it's impossible to understand Paul unless something very much like the Damascus Road happened. I nearly drove off the road. This is the BBC three professors from the elite English universities. You can't explain Paul unless something like this happened. He has seen Jesus. Got that? You've got to think about what that means. What happens on that road? He sees Jesus dwelling in light. Who alone dwells in light? It's Yahweh. What does that tell you about who Jesus is? He's actually Yahweh. It's great for you to talk about Jesus being the Messiah as long as you know what that means. He's actually Yahweh. Yahweh among us, right? Huge. Not only that, he's resurrected. This is what every Pharisee is hoping for, right? And it's happening right there in front of Paul, and guess what? He's on the wrong side. I mean, here's this guy who's done it all. He's on his way to deal with some really naughty Christians who are saying really bad things, and the light shines around him. What do you think he's thinking? At last, you've noticed. Right? Saul, Saul, he knows that from Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. So he's thinking, oh, this is great, this is my moment. And what does he get? Why are you persecuting me? Now, you're all nice people and you just take this off the table if you want to, but this is one of the world's great oh shit moments. Can I say that in church? I just did. Sorry. (laughs) But it works. I mean, this is just like, oh, smelly stuff. 
everything he's been involved with just goes sideways. This is a guy with all the training in the world. He's kept Torah blamelessly, he says in Philippians. Forefront of his generation, jealous for the traditions, national standing, etc., etc., etc. And all of that did what? Made him God's enemy, ultimately. Yikes. Now, that's going to be the key idea of our talk tonight. Don't ever get caught up in the trap of thinking that you need to be good to make God like you. It will destroy you because it's dead. We are not in the business of being good. We're in the business of something else. Now, the goodness will come, but that's not our focus. There's something else that's going on here. And we'll come back to that too. That's what Paul did. Done it all. All he did was make him God's enemy. And then Jesus was crucified. How do you make sense of that? The scripture says anyone who dies on a tree is, cru- is cursed by God. So hang on, what, what, what the heck can that happen? God doesn't resurrect cursed people and then the light dawns, the shekel drops, right? It wasn't his curse, it was our curse. When Christ died, all died. That's going to come up in his thinking as well, right? And then he struck blind and that's a stunning moment too. He knows his scripture, maybe you do too. Psalm 115, 135 what do they say? The gods of the, our God is in heaven, do whatever he wants. The gods of the nations have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouths that cannot speak, and so are all who worship them. What do you think it means for Paul when he's struck blind? He's turned doing Torah into an idolatry. This is why, good friends, don't you ever get caught up in the nonsense that you've got to be good to please God. All it will do is make you his enemy. It will turn you into an idolater. That's not what we're on about. Now, you want to talk about having your life turned upside down? (laughs) Now you understand why he focuses on Torah. He has been there. He has done all of that and done it better than anybody else. And he didn't just buy a T-shirt. He bought the entire store and the manufacturing plant. Right? He's got all of this. And it just wasn't where God is. Something happened in Jesus, just turns his life upside down. Just this incredible game changer. And that's why, given this experience, it's no surprise that Romans, be- Romans begins by doing what? Talking about Jesus. And can I just ask you a personal question? Can I do that? Do you love him? Oh, that's a bit personal, isn't it? I'll talk to the back wall. Ever seen those preachers where all the congregations sitting in the corners? Like, I feel like, no, look at me, I'm here, I'm here. You know? Sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot. Well, actually I am, right? I just, do you love him? Do you obsess about him? Because you won't get Paul until you do. He's done all of that stuff and he's discovered that the only one who can give him life and spirit is Jesus. He's a complete Jesus nut. And why? Because he saw him. Alive, resurrected. Changes everything. Torah could never do that. So he begins with this wonderful picture of Jesus. I need to watch the time, don't I? Um, A climactic verse. I'll try and scoot through some of this then. In this opening section, the gospel that he preaches about God's righteousness, both being faithful and faithfully keeping his promises. How does he do that? By enabling us to be his friends, not by doing Torah. Paul tried that and it didn't work. Instead, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and says what? 
The righteous person will find light. How? Through trust. Not through trying to be good. You get in the message? At IBM, they used to teach us the seven times principle. You have to say something seven times for it to kick in, right? So I've said it, what, three times now? Four more are coming, okay? Don't go down that road. It begins and it ends with trust. Now, I know he uses the word faith. I won't use that because we have spiritualized that out of all existence. It's a very simple, straightforward word. It just means trust in what you've been told. That's what God wants, right? He wants you to trust the stories you've been told about Jesus. Sorry, I just keep slipping. I'm moving around, Rich. It's like heritage, I'm afraid, can't stand still. Right? So that's how he begins. And then having said this about Jesus, the first cab off the rank is everybody needs this. And how does he know? Because even with the Torah, Israel, just read the scriptures, repeatedly failed to reflect God's glory. They're no different from the idolatrous nations who don't have Torah. Both of them are in trouble and Torah didn't help. Right? And you can see why that's so critical because Torah, Paul's not interested in good and evil. He never talks about that. He's not some abstract Hellenistic philosopher. He's a follower of Yahweh, the only God, and he doesn't talk about good and evil. There's Torah. That explains what God thinks is right. You got that? He doesn't fall into that abstract mode of thinking. That's why Torah is so important. Well, the good thing is this. As with the problem that everyone's in trouble, so to the solution. The good news is also the same for both, without ethnic distinction and without Torah. It comes to both simply through trusting Jesus. And boy, does Paul know that. He was on that road to Damascus. My goodness, he knows this. Now, what about the rest of them? Well, he says, actually, chapter 4, Israel, go back to your origins. And who's the big guy there? Abe, right? Good old father Abe. And what did Abraham find? Abraham was declared God's friend by what? Doing Torah? There was no Torah then. He became God's friend by trusting. And you can't change the terms of the agreement halfway through. It started with trusting, it ends with trusting. And what that means is Torah is actually temporary. <sighs> what? Yep, the Ten Commandments are temporary. How often in the New Testament are you told to keep the Ten Commandments? Guys, we are way beyond the Ten Commandments. Right? That's looking like God 101. We're at graduate level. It's an entirely different ballgame. So the fundamental grammar of friendship with God is not Torah observance, but trust. And we often think about, the, you know, Paul calls the Torah a curse. Remember that in Galatians? The law is a curse. And we think, yep, if you don't do it, you get into trouble, right? Paul says, you're not right, you get slapped around the cops and sent off into exile, okay? But actually, Paul also says the, the, uh, the law is a curse if you can do it. It's not just for those who don't, it's for those who do. Why? Because it puts the emphasis on doing and it is not about doing. It's about trusting. Okay, well that's fine for Abraham. What about the rest of us? Okay, good question. Why, why did God call Abraham in the first place? Well, ultimately because of someone called Adam. That's chapter 5, right? Okay, so how does Adam impact me? Well, look around, Paul says. How many people do you know who at some point don't die? Every human being dies. What does that tell you? It tells you that even though we didn't do what Adam did, every one of us has been impacted by that decision. 
sorry, it's just family. You don't get to choose your rallies. <laughs> that's where you are. Now, that's actually, believe it or not, also good news because the solution is also like the problem. If we who weren't in the garden can all be caught up with autonomous Adam's gift of death, by the same token, we can all be taken up in the gracious gift of life, but now through the obedience of the new Adam, Jesus. It's the same character pattern at work. All you need to do is trust, which, by the way, is exactly the issue in the garden. So out of that, chapter 5, comes a whole range of questions, and our section belongs to these questions. And the questions run from chapter 6 all the way through to chapter 11. And very quickly, the first one is, and it's kind of a bit of a narky question, right? And you'll find that the rabbis sometimes do this. They have a shot at you by pushing your logic to an extreme. It's one of the questions that Paul's there. Oh, well, smarty pants, that's all wonderful, right? We don't need Torah, it's all about grace. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and what's grace in response to? Well, our sin, of course. Well, what a great idea. Let's sin up a storm so grace might abound and God can be more glorified. Right? And it's a really dumb question, but that's why I'm saying we think what you're saying is dumb kind of ask these ironic, distorted questions the way of And Paul's point is, yeah, not at all. When you were baptized, you entered into a new life. You died to your rebellious autonomy. You rose with Christ according to the spirit of holiness. And so now we live to God. And he makes two points, the slavery one, which is just before Allison's text. Right? And that was the opening song, you've got to serve somebody. You're going to be a slave to someone. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean you get to do your own thing. Sorry about that. You're in the wrong shop if that's what you want. Coming to him means he's the one who actually helps us live and tells us how to live in a way that brings life to us. And Alison's passage was, you've got to marry somebody, right? You've got this old husband or the new one, and that's got to happen. Whereas in the past, I, and I think there's a couple of things going on here a little bit, you know, in addition to the normal laws of marriage. We're talking about Israel. What about Israel and marriage? Well, actually, it's all through the prophets. Israel was actually married to Yahweh. That's Hosea, that's Jeremiah. Right? It's a covenant relationship. In fact, Isaiah talks about God marrying Israel again. Why do you think Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in the Gospels? Not because he's the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't marry Israel. There is only one who marries Israel. Who's that? That's Yahweh. It's an amazing claim, right? So, yep, you've got to marry somebody, folks. And I think what he's saying is, you know, here's Israel married to Yahweh under the Torah. And the problem's not Yahweh, the problem's Torah. That's why when you read through that passage, you're thinking, oh, the husband has to die. And it's not the husband who dies, it's the wife. Right? Why does he do that? Because the problem's not the husband, the problem's the law that they're operating under. Right? So we die and that frees us from the law, that old Torah, so we can live under something else. Now I won't pursue that, you know, we'll just leave that for the time being. But, you know, once Israel had married Yahweh under that old covenant, we've now married Jesus, the bride of Christ, and it's a new covenant. It looks very, very different. Then the next bit, that's our question. What about the law then? Are you saying the law is sin? We'll come back to that. No, the law is not sin, but sin is the issue. We will get there. And then third one, which will come next week. Well, if the law is no, is no good for us, what about naughtiness? It's always going to be the question, right? No problem. Life in the spirit. Okay, And I just need to say this. If you trust, God will put his spirit within you and the spirit will take care of goodness. But if you focus on the goodness, that's not trusting except yourself. And that'll stop the work of the Holy Spirit and it's not going to work for you. In fact, it's idolatry. It'll kill you. Got that? 
And then finally, the big pink elephant in the room, one of the big ones, well, if all of this is true, what about Israel? And then that's chapters right, uh, 9 through 11. And then finally, what does this mean for us? Now, I know I've spent a lot of time here. I thank you for your patience. I think it's just important to try and keep this in place. So, what about our text? At last, you say, Lord have mercy. But just before, Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, and by flesh he doesn't mean running around in bodies, what he means by this is these desires that we just want to fulfill, right? Why can't I sleep with that person? Why can't I have 10 drinks before I drive? Why do I have to obey the speed laws? Everyone else does, but not me. Driving up the Blue Mountains the other day, 50% of the cars went past me in excess of the speed limit. Well, you know, it's Aussies, right? We're basically unreformed convicts and that's just what we do, okay? He talks about this, right? You know, this is a work in our body producing death, but now we are discharged from the law. We're dead to that which held us captive. He's talking about the Torah. So that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but the new life of the Spirit. Now you can see, with, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. You're connecting Torah with all this bad stuff. Are you saying Torah is sin? Now they're really pushing back on this. You've stuck that thing back in the realm where it's not working for us. What are you saying about Torah? You see the edge of it? It sounds like you're actually connecting Torah with all this bad stuff. Are you saying it's sin? And what's Paul's response? Well, of course not. And you've got to hear, to kind of get this, there's things you need to understand. Uh, some of us grew up in a tradition where the law is actually not a good thing, right? It's a burden, it's a heavy yoke, and its whole purpose is to make us feel bad so we come to Jesus, right? That's a nice idea, but again, no cigar. Just go back and read the scriptures. Psalm 119, huge celebration of Torah. It's a wonderful gift. And Paul says it here too. It's holy, it's just, and it's good. And of course it is. It comes from God. Okay? <laughs> of course it's good. So the problem, it's not the Torah's sin. What you have to realize is when the commandment came and it made God's will explicit, what it also brought into focus was my rebellion. So when Paul says, apart from what I wouldn't have known sin, he's not saying people didn't know what was right or wrong. He's concerned about Torah. What Torah does is it really makes clear when you're doing the thing you shouldn't do. Right? That's what he's after. And I think he's using now in the biblical sense of a man knowing a woman and vice versa. Right? This is a deeply intimate and passionate knowing. Right? Got that? Unless you're married to an engineer, but you know, all the others, you can be kind of, inter you know, I should stop there, but you get the idea. Right? The point of that term is to just get this out of the abstract world and get to the very heart of this deep passion within us that just says, no! And it starts at three months. Right? My wife teaches in primary school and she has stories that will quickly disabuse you of all of those nonsenses about, you know, red-cheeked little cherubs. Um, no, not at all. There's something about who we are and that's what the Lord means, right? And, and if you've read the Exodus, you'll see that's exactly what happens. They get the Torah and Israel's rebellion just comes in a very high relief. Now, there's a question that's worth asking. Of all the, the commandments, why does Paul pick up on the one about covetousness? Why does he pick that one? I don't think it's an accident. It's Exodus 20:17 or Deuteronomy 5:21. You will not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Why is he doing this? 
because it gets to the heart of the problem, folks. My self-assertion, I will have what I will have, doesn't happen in isolation. No man is an island entire to himself. My self-assertion will always be, finally, self-assertion over against somebody else. That's why it's love your neighbour, not abstract love. Love your neighbour. It's Nietzsche's Ubermensch. It's Brad Pitt in Troy, right? The Achilles, you having just skewered somebody. You know. Is there no one else? And that whole Homeric warrior tradition, elite males trained just to kill, killing machines. That was a culture, entire culture like that. It's Rome and the nations. It's the Corinthian elites who think they can do what they please and not worry about the folks that might damage on the way. In Thessalonians, it's the people who sleep around using other people's bodies as fodder for their own satisfaction. That I will is always at the expense of somebody else. So when the law gets to the heart of this, do not covet, but love your neighbour, what happens? There's stuff within us that just wells up and says, no, I will do what I will do. So maybe just to bring some focus on this as we come to the conclusion, hear now the parable of the chocolate cookie jar. Pardon the reference to cookies, but I have a lot of time in North America and still haven't quite gotten back to the biscuit language. doesn't quite work, but the cookies does, right? So what has mum done? Well, she's just cooked these wonderful chocolate cookies and she says, don't touch the cookies. You've got friends coming over later and off she goes shopping. And what happens? Ah, cookies. That's specific. That's giving definition. And guess what rises up within? And you've all seen Sesame Street. The cookie monster, right? And I stay looking, for lo, the cookies are pleasing to the eyes and good for food. And if I'm serpent crafty, mum will never wise up. And lo, as I watch the cookie jar, it filleth the kitchen. Yea, verily, it grows and fills the house. Indeed, the cookies filleth the entire known universe. And lo, I stretched forth my hand and ate more and more and more. And see, here I am, become naked, save for the chocolate stains around my mouth. You've seen the movie Chocolat, have you? Well, you hear the words of Jesus, let the one who has ears hear. This is what it does. It's not the law that's the problem, it's this other thing. A couple little points to tidy this up. Why does Paul refer to I? Why does he keep using I language here? Have you ever seen Yes, Prime Minister? Anyone seen that show? Just the most wonderful British comedy. So Humphrey Appleby is a wonderful line where he actually confesses his sin and he talks about the person uh, in whom he is the habit of referring to with a perpendicular pronoun. <laughs> uh, he is loquacious in the extreme. Um, but this is the I. What's Paul doing mentioning I here? He's just told us in Philippians that he kept the law blamelessly. Well, two things about this. Blamelessly doesn't mean he never sinned. If you go back and read the Torah, there's ample provision to take care of stuff that we do that's wrong. That's what the sacrifices do. As long as Paul stays in the covenant, that's all covered. So he can say he kept the law blamelessly, but it doesn't mean he didn't sin. You got that one? Okay, that's important to get right. 
And secondly, remember the setting, he's being respectful. You don't walk into a new situation and say to somebody, you know, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You're not going to do that. It's a polite way of doing that, and you talk about yourself, and actually it's a way of saying, I'm really talking about you. And I'm part of it too, but it's just polite. He does that in Galatians. He's making a general statement about the law. Now, don't. second thing is, don't try and do this in the natural human history of good and evil. It's not about that. It's about this thing that mediates our relationship with God, Israel's relationship with God. So when Paul says, apart from the law, sin was dead, he doesn't mean that up until that point, Exodus or Sinai, everyone was a saint. Of course not. They know their scriptures. That's not what he's talking about. What he's after is the role of the law. And the two points are, first of all, the law is incapable of dealing with sin. The prophets know this. In fact, Habakkuk, that ring a bell? Yes, the very guy Paul quoted at the beginning. He begins his document by complaining to God, your Torah is not restraining sin. Keeping the rules, good friends, will not help you. So two words, stop it. Did I say that? You probably haven't heard this enthusiasm too often here. Sorry. It's really important. You've got to give up on trying to please God by doing what's right. Just let it go. It will kill you. And it was never designed to bring you life. So not only can Torah not restrain that rebellion, it actually incites it. That's why getting out of Torah is so important. That's why you've got to marry somebody got to get out from under that thing and start living in a world that's about trust. See, Paul talks about the deceitfulness of sin, but sin it actually, it actually looks like a person. It's like an agency. We tend to think of sin as some kind of neutral thing. He actually uses personal language here. Why? Because that really expresses what it does. There's not, nothing neutral about this. You know when you're lusting after something, don't you? You know that. I know when I'm determined to do something that's going to be someone else's loss. I know that. That's not neutral. That's not abstract. There's a profound sense of agency about this, and Paul's picking up on that. And why do I do it? Because I'm deceived into thinking, if I look after myself, I'll find life. That's what I'm deceived into thinking. I have to look after number one, put myself first. Can I tell you, folks, that's the path to death. Don't get into a marriage with someone who thinks that. It'll kill you. It's not the way of the world that God made. And what happens is the good thing intended for life ends up bringing instead the sentence of death. And it's wonderful imagery. The law given to bring life actually does what? It resurrects sin. Beautiful language, right? The law resurrected sin. That's a wonderful choice of words because who does Paul now worship? Someone else who was resurrected. Jesus is God's ultimate gracious gift and he died our death and in being resurrected he gave us life. So no longer do the Torah thing, trust him. Now my time is gone but I want to tell you one more story. Who's seen the full Monty? I'm not going to do it here. You can rejoice. Sorry about that. Um, You know the movie The Full Monty? Anyone seen it? It's a really good film. And uh, I think it's got one of these incredible gospel moments. Might be an altar to an unknown God or an idol, but it's got a wonderful moment. If you know the story, it's a bunch of guys in Sheffield. The Sheffield dreams collapse. They can't work. They're trying to save their marriages. And the only thing they can think of is doing the full Monty. You know what that means? Right, got it. Good, okay. Um, 
So they have to learn some dance steps and do this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and there's one guy in particular that if he can just get this sorted, he's going to save his marriage and be able to see his child. That's why it's full of pathos. But there's one chap there called Dave, and Dave's got a bit of a weight problem. And he's trying to, you know, large guy, and these other fellows are not too bad, and he's got to dance alongside them. And what's he going to do, right? He just he feels awful. So there's one poignant scene where he's sitting out the back and he's got um, what is it, kind of glad wrap wrapped around him and he's chewing on a Mars bar. Right? It just kind of catches the tension perfectly. Well, he comes home one night, totally given up on this thing. He's pulled out. He's just in despair. And it's wonderful filmmaking because the camera is at the, stop, the top of this stairway. So it's one of those English upstairs, downstairs places, whatever they come, terraced housing. You see him walk in and the first thing he sees at the foot of the stairs is his wife's case packed and ready to go. First thing he sees, right? So then he kind of makes his way slowly and painfully up the stairs and turns into the bedroom because you know, that's the place where you're meant to be intimate and you share your love. And, and she's sitting on the bed with her back to him. You know, it's wonderful staging, right? Back to him, not face to face. And he says, what's it, is her name Jamie? What's her name? Um, you know, let's call her Jamie. Jamie, love, what's the matter, he says. Well, she is fit to explode because she's discovered Dave's little red leather thong to his full Monty thing on it, right? And she is ready to go. And it's born of a deep love for him. That's what's fueling this fire, right? And she says, here I was thinking that you were off looking for a job, you know. Oh, and I was doing something with Dave. Oh, with whatever his name was. Gaz, right? Oh, so she's one of Gaz's little Tarshies. And she's ready to go for him. Right? Absolutely furious. And he turns around and said, no, you got it all wrong. You used some language I won't use in church. Already done that once tonight. Right? Um, he said, you got it all wrong. He said, look, and he just broke. And he said, you know, we were just trying to earn some money by taking our clothes off. And then he looks at her, this big guy, and he just dissolves. And he says, you know, but Janie, who wants to watch this dance? Just, right? And she looks up at him with all that love, right, and says, I do, Dave, I do. Now, can I say to you, that's the gospel. Stop trying to impress God. We look in the mirror and we're often not happy with what we see and we try to be better so God will like us. Stop it. Just stop it. He loves you already because you're his kids, not because of what you've done, not because of, just because of who I am and who you are. And here he wants to say to you, I want to watch you dance. And that's what the gospel does. Trust frees you from all that pressure. I don't get to talk about this with somebody else. The little illustration might help. When I was a little kid, you know, out there on the road, I'd be walking on the footpath with the gutter, remember balancing, remember doing that stuff, feeling really heroic, right? Six inches up, great, right? Put me 10,000 feet up and see what happens. Reduce the quivering jelly. Why? Pressure. Pressure. How is it that top flight English Premier League players can miss the penalty shootout? It's pressure. You're in the wit and do it all the time. Well, I can miss for half as much money. Fire me, right? It's pressure. What happens if there's no pressure? And that's what Paul means when he says, even if you sin, it actually doesn't matter because it can't change the fact that you've been reconciled to God. And that's what he means when he says, and sin will no longer have power over you 
it no longer has the power and life of death over you because actually its fangs have been drawn. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. What it means is if you make a slip up, it just doesn't matter. And that's incredible freedom. And what's that born of? That's born of trust, okay? Well, I have spoken for way too long. Sorry about that. That's what happens when you let professors do this kind of thing. Dear friends, live into this, okay? Trust him. Trust him. And know the true freedom and life of the gospel. And with that, I will sit down.